Can people hear me now? Yes. Okay, great. All right. Sorry, I was talking between Wi-Fi and um, I think what is Polish T-Mobile. In any case, here I am. Um, thanks for joining me. I know the, the dates have been moved around a little bit. I got the uh, managed to hack for myself with the time zones. It was supposed to be last night, but then actually it was a good thing it wasn't last night because tonight was uh, last night was very busy. But um, let's let people sort of drift in. It's unusual for me to, to not have a guest because, you know, you might doubt this, but in fact, I'm not actually a narcissist. I just play one on the Internet. So I I'd prefer not actually being alone, just sitting here lecturing people and would rather riff off a guest. But um, oh, 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 I, I see David Sachs as one of the listeners. Look at that. Um, even though it's surely an odd hour on Pacific time. Um, so just as an update, cause I know some of you have been following me and like wondering what the fuck am I doing in Ukraine? Um, I actually crossed the border back to a NATO country earlier today, late this afternoon. I, um, we managed to find, uh, so I guess it's so weird to not have feedback. Um, I guess people are probably confused a as to why I went and then b what the actual situation in Ukraine is. Do, do, do people want like a, like a five minute summary of, of what my impressions have been or like what, what the deal is. <laughs> Would that be valuable? Cause I think from following like the American take on events, not that it's necessarily a bad thing, but it's clearly a sort of tournament of online shadows of like <laughs> the American projection of what this crazy shit is. So, okay. So everyone knows the war and the whole thing, right? So it, Man, it's it's intense. the The Polish Ukrainian border region is like mayhem, but also not mayhem in various ways. So, as you know, I, I think it's over three million Ukrainians at this point um, that the UN has said have left, which is an enormous number. It's 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 pushing ten percent of the Ukrainian population that have left. We're on day twenty one of the war. By the way, in a war zone, <laughs> here's one of the odd observations: when you're actually in a like a country not just at war in the way that Americans go to war, that like you outsource this thing and it's like little yellow ribbons and whatever, but it's not really total war. Ukraine is total war. The Ukrainians are completely committed to kicking out the Russian invader. And, and every aspect of life is touched by this in the way that I think no European society has been since like World War II. So everyone knows what day it is of the war. The announcements go out day 21 of the war, which I think is today. Um, um, and, and everyone talks about, like, you know, before the war and then after and then when the war started and then what happens after the war. Everything, your life has been predefined by what, what the war that's going on, even if, to be clear, in Western Ukraine, the war is not so direct. Right. Like literally bombs aren't. I mean, there's area sirens, but the, the strikes never really come or they're kind of not right in front of you. So you don't really see it. So it's it's, it's it is kind of an abstraction. But the feeling that the society is at war is definitely there. Right. Like every aspect, and I'll post the pictures in the reporting later, but like every aspect of society is completely dedicated to this war down to like little details like camouflage netting, which I know sounds strange. But if you actually have like roadblocks and you're hiding tanks and you're hiding surface air missiles, you have to cover it with shit. And, you know, the Ukrainians have trouble ordering stuff. You can't just order stuff on Amazon. Right. And so they, they have they have a whole like you know, assembly line of, of camouflage netting. They, they cut up clothes and weave it together. Anyhow, I took photos inside one of these factories. It's, it's really quite interesting, but um, it, it really is. It, it's the whole society is oriented towards this thing. And either you're fighting the war in some sense, like you're literally a fighter you're trying to support society as it fights, 
or you're a refugee fleeing and there's there's no in between everybody's one of the one or the other um anyway i don't i don't know how i started in this riff but uh, the, the 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 polish border and the poles are, have been amazing by the way and super supportive and amazing but it's it's still this strange situation where it's like okay this is like eu nato sort of civilization stability whatever and then over here is like chaos war refugees uncertainty who knows and you literally cross like a hundred yards and you go from one world to the other and i just went from the the other world the chaos world to this world where it's i'm in the old city in warsaw which is beautiful which funny itself was actually reconstructed because of course the nazis bombed warsaw to nothing um so but this is like a later chapter of of it and cities like kharkov and, and ukraine are being bombed to nothing anyhow it's, it's a strange it's, it's hard to describe it hopefully the images in the video that i took describe it but it's, it's a strange world in which there's like sharp lines in the ground like we almost got arrested because we accidentally crossed the people might have seen the photo that i took right on the border like there's there's certain things that are very much in order but then certain things are total chaos you're standing in line with a bunch of refugees and when you go back in there's like there aren't separate lines like you know everybody's in the same line and it's people with cats and dogs they've been going for days there's families there's kids it's not a, quite as bad as it used to be like you don't have literally people passing out like the, the line isn't quite that long but still it's it's the feeling of a lot of people are just like have their little rolly bag and the clothes on their backs and like that's it that that's what they are right now that that's and they're going into this into refugee camps and again europe has been extraordinarily supportive but still it's this it's this strange instability um okay i'll stop i'll stop there for a second um this i i guess i'll take questions maybe, maybe will that be better it'll, it'll give some structure to this um i also i don't quite know what people actually want to hear about i i'm guessing like I said, like the western part of Ukraine actually isn't that bad in the sense that like you're not getting actively bombed or anything. It's not quite like being in Kiev or Mariupol or certainly not any of those any of these other cities. But it, it's 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 not like first order risk. Like you're not you know it's not really that dangerous. But it's like second order risk. Like well I don't know what if what if what if the Belarusians invade and suddenly you're there. But um, I'll take a look. I'll just take a question and see people ask. So Kusha, I think I think I just promoted you to. There, there you go. Good afternoon, Antonio. Thank you for the promotion. Yeah, sure. I appreciate it. So one thing I'm really curious about is what you perceive the fears for nuclear disaster in Ukraine to be. And the reason I ask this is that only like a week or two ago, I remember I was having a conversation with one of the professors I work with. And in the middle, he was telling me that the Ukrainian power plant was on fire. And that was yeah. one of the scariest of news I've ever read in my life. And because yeah. uh, one of the Ukrainian ministers was saying that the blast would have been 10 times as strong as <laughs> Chernobyl. And Chernobyl yeah. in the 1980s was one of the biggest factors that led to the bankruptcy and collapse of the Soviet Union. Of course, so did the nuclear yeah. arms race, the weapons race and intervention in Afghanistan that killed tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. So I'm really curious to know what that sentiment has been like. Because if I'm not mistaken, that was a result of Russian shelling of a nuclear uh, uh, power plant and the largest one in Europe, if I'm not mistaken. I legitimately felt like it could have taken out much of Europe had the later articles and news not come out that it was involved. So that seemed like it could have been an opportunity for ceasefire throughout to end the war, given how grave the threat is, given our history as a human race in the 1960s. Yeah. but that's that's not how these things work, right? So so that was in uh, Saporizhia, um, which just uh, 
you know, it's, it's funny. I didn't actually know very much about Ukraine before I got here, but now suddenly I can actually recognize cities on the map. That's in Zaporizhia, which is a, a city on the west side of the Dnieper River, sort of in central Ukraine, just south of, of Kiev. And indeed, it has a very large power plant. You know, that minister saying it would be 10x Chernobyl, I think got fact-checked reliably as being a little bit overstating it. Okay. You know, I'm, 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 not a, I'm not a nuclear scientist. So I'm not going to comment, like, reliably on, like, what actually did or didn't happen there. But it... Um, I think I see again, I see David like looming in the audience. I think, you know, the bigger nuclear that I think people worry about is obviously not an accident and a nuclear reactor. Not not that that couldn't happen, to be clear. And again, I'm not a nuclear scientist, but it's the it's the deployment of nuclear weapons. Right. Because you are dealing with a nuclear power on the other side of it. Um, so, you know, I again, I I'm not diminishing it, but I, I think the feeling on the ground in Ukraine in terms of like how do you live daily life? It's, um, it's a lot more focused on like food, transport, internet, yeah. morale. Like <laughs> I think, and, and again, this is inevitable, right? But there's, there's a lot more realities on the ground. I think they're definitely distanced from the American discourse around, you know, who said or didn't say what or color revolutions, like this whole, and, and again, it's one of these weird things, American imperial privilege, right? They, they view the outside world as like a projection of their domestic political neuroses, which is 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 great in a privilege in many ways. And, and many empires in the past have been the exact same way. But I think it, it, gets, it gets very hard to pierce through that just blinding veil of like, of, you know, availability biases, basically, in terms of what's yeah. being discussed and get to the reality of like, look, dude, like they just hit like a maternity hospital and they just killed a bunch of kids, right? Or Kharkiv, the second largest city in Ukraine, is being turned into a ruin as we speak, right? And, you know, and then the questions around what what are or aren't color revolutions or, you know, what, what did Joe, you know, Biden's son did or didn't do, like is completely irrelevant, frankly, to the situation on the ground. Of course, it's relevant in the sense that, like, to the extent that it molds American public opinion and to the extent that that molds American foreign policy, which does impact, obviously, things on the ground, maybe it matters, but it, I don't know. It just seems like an odd, to me, it seems like a very odd conversation to have, given at least the very the very little that I've seen of the situation. I'm, I'm really, the, you're providing very incredible insight, Antonio. I'm, what I'm really curious about is, given that um, one of the biggest uh, recent announcements is that uh, President of Ukraine Zelensky uh, just spoke in Congress and requested yeah. no fly zone. You got a standing yeah. ovation. I'm really curious to know yeah. is is the sentiment of that of Ukrainians one such that such escalation would be to their benefit to stop the bloodshed and massacre as we see hospitals, apartments, public squares like in Kharkiv? Is that what the sentiment is, or are you noticing? Is there a sentiment that's saying like, look? If the area of Ukraine, the country of Ukraine, is made to be a neutral territory like that of, a, say, Finland, if the United States takes a role in denuclearizing itself and Israel, perhaps Putin and Russia... Oh, wait, no, wait, man. <laughs> no. Well, that's never going to happen, no. right? It's, it's the U.S. are not going to denuclearize. But I, I, I think what's getting a little bit lost in the shuffle, right, is that the Ukrainians are having this massive nationalist moment, right? Mm -hmm. And and again, I, I don't consider myself an expert in the region. I've been reading up on my various flights and bus rides here and there, you know, various books that have come recommended that seem reliable. So I, I've gotten a, at least a, a grasp for it a little bit. Um, but it, 
the Ukrainians are having a nationalist moment, right? Like it, from these, these are the fires from which nations are sort of forged, right? And whether it be the the Maidan protests in 2014 and 15, which for those who aren't familiar, uh, corrupt, pro-Russian, not exactly democratic president, massive protests, um, he fl- he fled elections. You know, it, it was a, it was a formative moment. Um, there, there's a couple of films you can watch about it, but um, to, to now, I think you know the, the Ukrainians have always struggled to declare themselves a nation, and, and I won't even attempt to summarize. Not that I could. Hundreds of years of of history now, but they're they're definitely having a moment, right? Like the flag is everywhere. Slava Ukraini, glory to Ukraine is like literally saying hello on the phone. It just it, it it's like it's like Israel in the '67 war, if that resonates to anybody, right? Like it's that level of self sacrifice and resolve. And um, and I think that's getting a little, I mean, obviously it's been lost because everyone thought the Ukrainians would just fucking roll over and fold and they completely haven't and they still haven't. And you go there now and it's like, I, these people are not going to be defeated. Like Russia's not going to win, right? Like it might, it, who knows? There might be a breakthrough in Kiev. They, man, they might manage to like whack Zelensky. Who knows? Like anything could happen in war. But like Russians actually winning in the sense of like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Ukraine's just going to be eaten by Russia and that's it. I, 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 I bet money like 95, five again, like no way. It's just not going to happen. These people are not going to just be dominated. It's just not going to happen. Right. And the Russians have such terrible morale. They're not even very good at war. And they're just sitting there like destroying one city after another to try to force the Ukrainians to fold. I, I, I just, I don't see it happening. Um, I, I really think I, the, the sense of resolve and self-sacrifice that I see is really beyond the pale. Um, and, and that to me was interesting to, Anyway, I'll shut up there. Okay, there's there's a couple people in line. Do you mind, Kusha? Can I go on to the next caller? Do, do you mind? Or unless you had like some burning question you wanted to, you want to. Uh, uh, I just like to conclude on this thought. Uh, thank you very much for that, Antonio. And then definitely, please, I'd love to hear the other callers. What I'm really oh, curious okay. about is since you yeah. mentioned like this nationalism that's taking place in, U- in Ukraine, yeah. do you how much do you sense that this nationalism has the elements of that bigoted? Um, rageful um naziist element because i just saw yeah. one ukrainian presenter yeah. uh on ukraine 24 who was quoting adolf eichmann for the genocide of russians talking about killing their children and um i think I, i'm really curious to know because that's something we hear so much from certain elements of uh, the self-described imperialist left that the nazis are very strong influential in ukrainian society whether that's the azov battalion integrated into the military and so on and so forth. I'm really curious yeah. to know what's the sentiment like from ordinary people in Ukraine about the nationalism. Is it more so about um, to preserve our lives, or is it turning into that vitriolic, hateful, murderous type of nationalism? And um, I, can- I guess so I'm in Western Ukraine, and so I think that's very different. The sort of you're referring to sort of Azov Battalion, the sort of extreme right wing, which typically operates in Eastern Ukraine. And so I, Ukraine is a Ukraine is a big country. I think it's the second largest second or third largest country, well, no, probably third or fourth after France or Germany. It's a big, it's like the size of Texas. It's big from one side to the other. And so Western Ukraine, it doesn't, in my, what I've seen, doesn't have those elements. I mean, they have nationalists, they have, they definitely have hard nationalist elements, but it's more, (laughs) this is going deeper in history. 
this part of the world was very debated whether it was Polish or whether it was Ukrainian right back in the day. And so there are local nationalists who fought against the Poles, but it has nothing to do with like the Nazi anti-Semitic thing in the East. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm just saying I, I, in the part, at least that I was, it wasn't present because it's just not historically present. I, I did read a piece today, actually, and I think it was an unheard by uh, Eris uh, Rusinos, who's an interesting war correspondent. And it was precisely about this. And I saw it being, I, I thought it was very good. But again, I, I don't consider myself an area expert, but I noticed it was actually being retweeted by Ukrainians who said, I'll go. This is probably the best non-Ukrainian treatment of it. So just look up Eris Rusinos and, and he wrote about the exactly what you're asking about. And I think he has probably a much better answer to that question than than I would possibly have. Thank you so much. I wrote Eris sure. Rusinos name down and uh, I really appreciate all the time. Un- unheard. Unheard. Yeah. Okay, unheard. cool. Yeah. Cool. Let me uh, let's have Mark on here. By the way, like you can cue, you know, be the next caller or whatever. Mark, are you there? Oh, we've got bug done. If Mark isn't there, I'm going to. Oh, hey, Mark. Yes. Uh, Just a quick question in terms of like the life there. Um, The people that are staying, if they are not staying to fight, which I'm assuming not everybody's planning to stay to fight, what, what are their reasons for staying versus what are their reasons for leaving? I mean, dude, Ukrainians are like, this is home. <laughs> I didn't want to leave. <laughs> That's the thing. Like, you, you talk to refugees, even on the Poland, like, they, like, they've gotten out, right? And and most European countries, I mean, broadly speaking, I don't know, all 28 or whatever, are like, yes, Ukrainians, you can come, like, work visa, whatever. Like, that, they, they don't want to leave. Like, but that's the thing. Like, they're having a nationalist moment. Like, Ukrainians, it seems to me, are finding themselves, and they, they don't want to leave, right? And so if people leave, the other thing, of course... I think it's a combination of two things. One, the Ukrainian government has a thing where if you're 18 to 60 as a male, you, you can't legally leave. Like, you literally cannot. Like, it's chaotic in the sense that there's, like, a lot of people shuffling around, but, like, order hasn't broken down. Like, the border still exists, right? And so if you're a male 18 to 60 who's Ukrainian, even if you're a Ukrainian dual citizen, and this is a little bit of a, an issue right now, you can't get out. Even if you have, like, an American or Israeli passport, the Ukrainians won't let you get out, even if... And so who you have leaving is basically old, very old people and women and children. That's it. So like you're in the refugee line and like, you know, when when I left, it was like, there's one line. So you're sitting there and it's just like women and kids and dogs and pets and whatever. And, and that's it. So like those are the people who leave and everyone who stays is, is, is male. Not everyone fights, right? Like at the end of the day, they don't necessarily need that many untrained people, but everyone contributes in some form or another, just like it's a random thing. Again, and Lviv isn't like the front lines or anything, right? But it's, yeah, it does feel like it's on a wartime footing. You know, I was there on a Sunday, sunny day, relatively warm, a bunch of high school kids joking around. What are they doing? They're filling sandbags and piling it up in front of these. The symbol of Lviv is a lion. And so they have these like historic lion statues in front of this thing. And it's like their fun Sunday activity is just like filling up sandbags so that if Russian missiles or rockets were to fall, it wouldn't blow up like the Lviv lions. And, you know, they would literally say, you know, Slava Ukraini, glory to Ukraine, Heroim Slava, you know, glory to the heroes. And then somebody would come out and, like, read, like, everyone's, like, doom scrolling Telegram all the time to see, like, what's the latest news of the war. Because, like, literally every day something changes. Like, the war seems very long, but it's only been 21 days, (laughs) literally three weeks. And every day it brings new news. So they're all sitting there, like, listening to the thing. It It really is total war, right? Which I think it was Klaus with somebody else who invented, like, the notion that, like, all of a society's resources would be motivated towards one goal 
which is fighting this war, right? Which again, is unusual. Like Americans have never lived a total war in recent memory. And, you know, even in like the sort of pre-modern period, it wasn't, you know, you know, the soldiers would gather here, the king and this and that, there'd be a battle, maybe it would change something politically, but it's not as if the entire society was mobilizing to sort of annihilate or defeat the other society. In Ukraine, it's, it's, it's a total war. All of society, like Zelensky suspended taxes, there isn't a normal economy in much of Ukraine. Everything is towards the war and nothing else, or getting people out. It's like either refugees fleeing or people fighting or supporting the fighters, right? And so it's um, it, it's it's weird, right, to to live in the site. Of course, in again in in Lviv, which is a very nice city in the western Ukraine, like you know, there's still like cafes open and restaurants open. Like some aspect of like sort of normal life is still there. You know, some you know some things on the, on the menu might be missing, and an air raid siren will go off literally in the middle. Like I was like, standing in a kebab stand, like trying to buy drunk food because we'd come from the thing, and like literally the alarm went off, and everyone. <laughs> A lot of soldiers were there, and I guess they had to go back to their stations when the air raid sign goes up. So, they, like, like, ran out. But, um, you know, anyway, I'll, I'll shut up there. But, um, no, that, that's question? amazing. I like that was yeah. my next part was like, what's actually open? What's closed? Like, there are people at like a barber shops open or flower shops? Yeah, open? yeah, 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 yeah. That, so, and again, I, I, I think Kiev is probably a, a very different scenario. And then obviously, the besieged cities are apocalyptic hellscapes like nothing else at least you you know but judging by the photos but in the case of leave you know it's if you sort of squinted and you didn't see the soldiers and if you didn't notice the like machine gun nest on the way in when you drove in because usually there's like checkpoints on on the way into the cities you know it wouldn't look that different than any other sort of central or eastern european city necessarily you know it's again it's just like things like the air raid sirens or you go to the train station and there's this massive so Lviv is like sort of free Ukraine, so to speak, in the sense that it's like fairly far away from the front. And so a, a lot of the refugees, you know, go west and kind of converge on Lviv and decide to either stick around. Because, again, a lot of Ukrainians like they, they don't want to leave. They, you know, and then a lot of them are like, well, the war could end in a week or two. Right. Like, again, it, it was thrust upon them. And they're like, you know, and from, some of it's a little delusional. I think maybe it's like, oh, no, it's going to end in a week or two, which uh, I don't think so. But they don't you know, it's. My parents were political refugees. Like it, it's hard if you think about what does it take to convince you to take literally your kids and like a few documents and fill up a little rolly bag and like literally get on a bus or train and like go for two or three days in one direction and just like leave it all behind. Like what would it take for you to do that? Right? It would. It would I'm, literally. I'm, I'm take... a bad example. I'm in Serbia right now. So. Oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think for for most Westerners, they've never experienced. They've never had to face that choice, right? They have no idea what that means, and yeah, so. Yeah. But, yeah, but for many Ukrainians, that's that's exactly what they've they've just faced. So it, it's weird. Like again, in Lviv, it's like it feels like Casablanca. Like I went to this cafe, and there's like obviously like American private contractor like operators. There's like people buying shit. I donated all my body armor, all my fruit, like all that shit. Like I gave to the church. A lot of people like trying to source stuff and like trafficking it from the west and trying to get it through the border. It's um, yeah, it's. It's a weird vibe. <laughs> I describe it more than that. Yeah, no, I, oh. I hear you, man. It's, it's amazing. Well, thank you for sharing that. It's, it's definitely yeah, a weird sure. vibe in Serbia too. I'm, I'm on my way out. Like they literally were the only city in the world that had pro-Putin uh, protests in uh, Belgrade. Last well, week. the Serbs have always been very pro-Russian, even going back to the Balkan Wars. I remember. Yeah, yeah. I know. It's, it's a rough one, so I'm, I'm moving. I'm going back to Canada. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, uh, cool. wish you all, all the right. best, man. Thank you. All right, thanks. See ya. All right, Bogdan is next. Welcome, Bogdan. Oh, did it? No. Oh, there we go. Yeah. 
Hello. Oh, Bogdan disappeared. Okay. We'll have uh, Mateo. Welcome, Mateo. You do accents really beautifully. You do a beautiful Latin American version of my name, and you really you're nailing the uh, the Ukrainian phrases quite well. I'm very impressed. <laughs> okay. um, and that's why you're probably qualified for a subtle question like I'm going to give you. So, Victor Orban to a uh, rabid, cranky liberal like me is a real boogeyman. And like you know, as a lib, I hate him because I'm supposed to, for many reasons. What, what's the, what do you notice in terms of the politics of like, obviously the three PMs that just went over were uh, yeah. the Slovenes, the Czechs and the Poles. And obviously the Poles and the Hungarians are both kind of like in the bad boy club in Brussels in terms of being a little bit, a little bit too obviously reactionary, right? In their politics and kind of pissing off Brussels in that way. That's of course a very, very long story with Orban. What's your take on how that's actually playing out from the perspective of Ukraine? You know, it's it's funny. The only mention of this was um, in uh, the border crossing. That actually, it's funny. I I, I, I just crossed it this morning. Um, but the uh, as a side note, sorry, I'll, I'll get to your question in a second. But it's funny. You, some of you might ask, like, well, so what happens when like the refugee crosses? They literally walk across with like the rolly bag and like their kids and like their cat and the carrier. And it's like, okay, we made it. Like we we survived whatever. We're here who's on the other side of it, it, it it's probably going to be some like Polish grandma um, with a, a big bowl of Polish soup and like Polish border guards with tea helping with your bags. Right. Well, Poles, Poles and Ukrainians, I think we're kind of seeing the blood thicker than water in a lot of ways in that Poles and Ukrainians have the whole bond of being in that state structure 400 to 700 years ago. Right. And they're very ethnically close. So that's kind of showing through, right? Yeah. Although, I mean, yes, yes and no. I mean, again, I don't know the area well, but if, you know, Stepan Banderas, who was this Ukrainian nationalist who was super anti-Polish, Lviv used to be Lvov, which was a Polish city. So, I mean, they, they used to have their own border conflicts back in the day. But yes, it's all gone now. The Poles are cool with it. They're like, let's, yes, let's help these Ukrainians. Um, but the, anyhow, the old lady who was like serving the soup was like, Oh, yeah. I mean, in her broken English, like, yeah, oh, yeah, the West hates us because of being conservative, whatever. I, I don't know. I think it's just fallen. It, it's just fallen away. It doesn't matter. And, you know, like so much of this discourse, which is a little bit like wokish and a little bit virtual in terms of like, let's create problems for ourselves that aren't real. When you're literally again, when you're standing at the board and again, you've got like women and children like streaming across some of them in terrible health, some of them poor conditions. Like today was a warm day, but like three or four days ago. It's cold as fucking shit, man. It's like it's like late winter in like Poland and Ukraine. Like if you get caught out at night in these temperatures, like a lot of people are just gonna die. Like, it's, it's one of many cold. reasons it's a really, really bad idea to invade it, right? As a, as right. a couple of people have learned in history. So I guess bef before I, I th those are great answers, and I, I don't want to dominate the queue. So one last yeah. thought. Here's my yeah. question: In terms of if Orban generally wants to keep things friendly with Russia and however these things resolve, do you see any impact in that in terms of like Hungary and Poland being different in terms of how they treat refugees, aside from like, you know, the fact that Hungarians aren't Slavs uh, and, you know, it's not a sister culture in the same way? Yeah, you know, I wish we were more versed in local culture to be able to comment on that. I mean, I, I do wonder where this is going to go because we're, we're about to hit 3 million people and the Poles are wonderful people, but at some point, you know, it becomes too much to deal with. Like the border really is a zoo. And it's like, uh, it's a good question. I, I, I don't know. I, yeah. 
I, I wish I had spent more time on like the Hungarian and the Slovenian and the uh, Moldovan border. It, the vibe is probably different, but the vibe, at least in the Polish and the Ukrainian border, is one of just like sympathy and empathy and warmth and welcome and you know, like my I had an Airbnb in Chimichel, which is one of the main cities, and and like I had to leave early and like I didn't book the room. She's like, "Well, just book it, and then I'll give it to a refugee." Like they're very open people, so. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I can't comment more on the Hungarian. Series. Oh man, there's a whole line. Okay, let's let's have let's promote Steve. Steve, welcome, welcome. Hey, Antonio, how's it going? Hey. Um, first of all, this is awesome that you're doing this, and I've been loving the coverage so far. Um, yeah. so as a as a tech guy myself, I'm fascinated by how the I guess the tech community in Ukraine has just done an incredible job. Um, on Twitter, putting these videos together and yeah. just the, I mean, they're, they're definitely, it's, it's super impressive. I'm curious to know from the ground, what, what, what is like the, I guess, what's the, you know, the counter ops, uh, tech to, to, you know, push back against the Russian propaganda. I know there's a lot of families that are in, intertwined with, you know, relatives and, you know, close relatives in, in Russia itself. I'm curious to know if there's been any rumblings with the people you've met so far and, and bringing it back to tech. Yes. Well, to some degree, I mean, I mean, the Ukrainians are obviously completely willing to media war, right? Like they're actually very good at media, right? In a way that Russia is not. And so <laughs> this whole Russian propaganda mechanism that supposedly through the entire 2016 election, somehow completely MNS and doesn't exist anymore and can't sell its own war. Um, you know, it's funny. I had an interview with a guy, um, but getting to your particular point, it's like, what is tech doing? And is there, are there conflicted things? I had an interview that's going to drop in pull requests with a guy named uh, Andre Liskovich, who's a former Uber guy, a uh, very bright guy, you know, total Silicon Valley dude. He's been interviewed with like Bloomberg and a few other people as well. Um, and he, uh, he's, he's, well, it's funny because he was raised, I think he's ethnically Ukrainian, but he was raised in Russia and he speaks Russian actually. And so I, I think he feels a little bit split in the sense that his best friends are Russian, but push comes to shove, he feels Ukrainian and he's in Saporizhia and he's, you know, as many people are trying to source, you know, ballistic armor plates for, you know, for bulletproof vests and supplies and the things you need to like manage a war. Um, so, you know, I, I, in terms of outside techies, I haven't found that many people. A friend of mine, Dwight Crow, who's a Facebook PM is, is, in Kiev, volunteering in an ambulance unit. But um, yeah, I haven't seen that many techie people, other than people who actually have developers in Ukraine that to which they're very supportive, right? And like, oh, get your families out, take time off, money, whatever. Um, yeah, but, I, uh, I guess I was, I was more, I guess I'm, to follow up on that, is there a part of the Ukrainian military that is that was ready for this? Because it seems like they are, you know, anything that, that happens online, they have something out immediately after. Uh, that's well produced. I, well, I think, I, and again, I, I, you know, being like in country doesn't necessarily give you a privileged view on any of this, but just from right. like the pure second order, like media, like, dude, the Ukrainians are just better at. It. I don't know, <laughs> just like literally runs <laughs> his entire circle. Like, this, what's his name? The, the digital media guy who, like, you know, cajoled Elon into sending Starlinks, which are super valuable, by the way, because it's. Uh, internet in a lot of the country doesn't work particularly well and they're particularly like, like i i actually brought a starlink and i donated it to, to somebody and it's like that guy and then everybody else is like they're very I, I think they're just more westernized they aspire to 
dude, like in the in the Maidan protest in 2014, they would fly EU. Like their big thing of protest was that the government at the time was not pro EU. They wanted to join Europe. They run. They wanted to be part of the West. You know, they, they consume American culture and Western culture. Like they just they aspire to be that. They don't want to be some separatist Russian nationalist ideal. They 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 absolutely want to be part of the West, and, and therefore I don't know. I think they're just better at it, and they. They believe in it in a way. It's bizarre. It reminds me of Israel. Times that I've been in Israel, there's this very grassroots feeling of like this is this nation and we have to fight for it. And I think that comes out in the propaganda, which again I know that usually has like a negative connotation. To me, it isn't necessarily like the information war is part of a war. Like you have to have a propaganda. That's just the way it works. And so I think their their propaganda is just like a lot better than the a lot better than the Russian one. Also, the Russians don't have a cause. What what story can you? <laughs> What story can you possibly spin that you're going to denazify a country with a Jewish president? I mean, it's ridiculous. They don't even have a narrative. It's terrible. What can you possibly sell? It just sucks, right? And you've got this, like, sociopathic toad of Putin sitting there, like, enunciating, like, dreams of Russian grandeur. It's just, it's horrible. You just can't sell this thing. Yeah, so. right. I, I work for an Israeli tech company, and we, we're doing a lot of work. Uh, some of the volunteers there, and that's the, the big joke around um, the Slack channels. <laughs> But, what, uh, what's the big joke? What's the big joke? Uh, the big, the big joke about the denazifying uh, the the country yeah. is that yeah, it's like um, it's, I mean, and then Israel being you know sort of toeing the line, it's kind of a interesting situation. But uh, oh yeah, well, that, I mean, the, the fact that somehow Israel, like the most embattled nation on earth, is somehow suddenly the mediator, as if they're Switzerland. It's like, wait, what the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> uh, they don't, uh, the, the, the Israeli press does not know what 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 route to go right now. It's pretty it's pretty funny watching unravel. Cool. Well, thank you for your question, yeah. Steve. I there's a big line, so I'm, I'm going to find the yeah. best guy. Okay. Cool. All right, we've got uh, Dylan. All right. Uh, thanks, Antonio. Really appreciate it. Um, it's definitely interesting to see uh, what you've been posting on Twitter. Um, I just got one question. Um, I was curious. I believe you said you, you'd kind of run into some uh, American types or, or something like that. You know, I was, I was curious if you ran into any of the, you know, foreign fighter, you know, volunteer types and, you know, kind of what your read was on, on any of those folks that you encountered. Um, only only very residually. Um, when you when you crossed on some of the crossings, like when we crossed over to the Ukraine side, um, and this was before the, wait, was it before the bombing? No, it was just after the bombing. Um, uh, when you cross over you know, like the, there's like a Legion little booth there where they give you like tea and try to welcome you and stuff. Um, and, and you see, again, being at the border crossing, it's weird because it's, it's this very transitory thing, but you'll see like young males who look pretty fit with like military gear and they're like alone. Like it's just a very, like not, there aren't that many people crossing like West to East from Poland to Ukraine. And it's like, mm, who are you? And so I, I've, I've crossed them residually, but not, I haven't encountered them directly. And then I don't know if you follow the thing, but in, in, in uh, Yaroviv, which is the, like an international military training thing, they turn into the Legion's training ground. That, that's a place that got hit by, Russian, by eight Russian cruise missiles, I think three or four days ago. And so I, I don't know what the state of the volunteers are these days. But if, if you look at both, I mean, that bombing and then, some, I mean, obviously it's journalism, so it's like a little bit of a selective sample of sources. But it seems as if the Ukrainians aren't trained in them particularly well, and they're kind of treating them like cannon fodder. Um, and so, I, yeah, again, I, I have a very, I, to answer your question, I have basically no direct experience. But um, 
you know, you don't see them around. Like the, the young soldiers you see on the streets of Lviv are obviously like Ukrainians and they look 18 or nine, they look very young, right? And they, they were obviously recruited very recently. But um, yeah, I haven't really seen the foreign fighters at all. I, from what I hear, they get, they get thrown to the front immediately. So they would be like northwest of Kiev and stuff. They, they wouldn't be in the, in the western part of, of Ukraine. That's really interesting. Uh, what, what you're saying about the sort of, uh, you know, the, the T station there at the border. Did, yeah. did they try and like pitch you like, hey, you know, you, like, you could, uh, <laughs> join, the, join the front line? Uh, well, I, I, you know, I haven't looked into it too much. I'm, I'm in a signal group that supposedly facilitates these people just like to kind of like see the vibe. Like you do have to apply through one of the consulates. Like, I, I don't think I'm not sure, but I, you, I don't think you can actually just roll up and say, hey, I'm fighting for Ukraine. Like you, they want to avoid criminals. And I do think they triage by military experience or something. I, I yeah, it's, it's not like an enlistment boost, like the, you know, the Marine Corps recruitment center in like the shopping mall and whatever. Like, it's not quite that vibe. I think it's, yeah, I don't know how many of them there actually are. I think the Ukrainians claim it's like, what, 10, 20,000 people have actually enlisted. That seems like a big number to me, but I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Reddit seems to, you know, make it look like there's like a ton of them and it's, you know, having a great time, but uh, I have a feeling that's not, you know, quite accurate. No, I mean... The, yeah, I mean, the accounts I've read that seem well-sourced, like it's reliable outlets that like actually have quotes from real people. Like, dude, they give you a few days of training, they toss you an AK-47, they put you in some unit, and like, that's it. And that just sounds, <laughs> that does not sound, that does not sound fun. Um, okay. Thank I'll, you. I'll also realize that like, a lot, you know, a lot of, a lot of things are hard to source in a wartime economy, right? Like I, you know, like I donated my body armor to like the, there's a beautiful Jesuit church in Lviv that's run by this guy. And I interviewed him and, you know, they've got units coming through. And like, I, and like, I, I got a message like today, like, oh yeah, a soldier came through. We gave it to him. Like he's going straight to the front. Like literally I, I donated like my plate carrier with ballistic plates and like a soldier got it instantly went to the front. And if I hadn't donated it, like he, he wouldn't have had one right like it's that level of of uh you know i wouldn't say desperation but of uh yeah a sort of uh scramble well thanks and and, and just last follow-up uh but you know but from from your perspective like just crossing the border you can't effectively just roll up and be like hey i want to you know i don't think I don't, I don't, I, that's not what i've heard no i i don't think so no because, uh, who knows i mean what how did that go for you is, is what i mean well, I, I didn't yeah, try like, to enlist. I, I don't know. I wouldn't. No, no, I understand. No, I'm not talking about enlisting. I'm just talking about just simply going into Ukraine. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no. Well, well, going east. <laughs> going east, there's no blockers. It's going west. It's <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, yeah. You just. It's weird, but I, I, I should probably. I'll post my photos of it. There, there's like a. There's. I mean, there's various crossings. There's a big one in Medica, which is the the main one on the road between like Shimisha, which is like the Polish rail town. And Lviv, which is the big western town, and uh, you know, there's just like a, a huge refugee camp, food, people, volunteers, like a constant flow of people out. And then, yeah, you can you can walk through the door going the other way, and there aren't that many people people going that way, right? And <laughs> it's, you just it's you wild know, to imagine. <laughs> you know, it, I mean, it is it's weird because you feel like you're crossing this massive threshold. In retrospect, like we obviously overdrive, like it wasn't that big a deal. Although I think part of it's also like. Humans' risk threshold just change. It's like, 
oh, this seems so scary crossing into Ukraine. Two days later, we're like sleeping through air raids. We don't give a shit. Like, oh, maybe we should get on the train to keep, ah, this is nothing, right? So, you know, things change. But at the time, it feels like you're making a big step in that. It, it, it is a borderline, right? Like when you're crossing, we just came this morning and just like you see a big sign. It's like, welcome to the European Union. It feels you're crossing into a very different entity. When you're going the other way, it's like, yeah. And, 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 and you know, there's, there's a big delta between Poland and Ukraine just in terms of like look and feel. Like Poland is evidently doing very well. It's very prosperous. Like it's fully part of the West. You go to Ukraine, like the roads are terrible. Like it's very much developing world. It's there's there's a big border. There's a big thing you cross there, right? And like we didn't know if our phones would work. So like, what if we went there and like we literally had no internet? We have no language. Like AT, we had no local currency, <laughs> right? But you know, but yeah, you you can roll up and more or less you'll you'll get through. I mean, it, it helps if you have like a driver to drive you around and stuff. If you were literally just like a backpacker walking through, it 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 would be rough. <laughs> I think. Yeah. So I wouldn't recommend it. But um, anyhow, if you're thinking of going, that's it. It's things are definitely they're always cooked hotter than they're eaten. It's not nearly it's not at all as dangerous as it sounds like the western part of Ukraine is fine. If people want to go visit, go visit, spend money, pay people like the economy is obviously rough. Um, But yeah. But, you know, don't maybe go too far east of of Lviv. (laughs) Okay, Bogdan, you have a question. Bogdan, oh no? Okay. Uh, yeah. Hi, Tony. Thanks for uh, for doing this, and thanks for being in Lviv. I'm actually from uh, Ukraine myself. I live here now in uh, San Francisco, but uh, my family uh, is in. What part of Ukraine? So Ukraine. I'm in uh, uh, near Chernigiv. Uh, it's uh, Nizhny oh. is my hometown. Uh, so it's actually. Yeah, I know yeah. Uh, yeah, I can tell. About, uh, but my question is the following. Actually, I, we can speak about. Uh, the situation there if uh, if if you're interested and because i'm in touch with uh, with people there but uh, my question then in general though is uh, is the following uh, so what what do you think about the no fly zone discussion and uh, uh you know I, I think there are multiple levels uh you know how it can be you know, sort of perceived and i'll give you uh sort of uh, uh perception that i have right so uh, it, it's of course it's complicated to establish a full sort of no-fly zone over Ukraine, right? Just just sort of logistically, it's it's uh, super difficult, uh, you know, and uh, also requires you know troops probably on the ground, NATO troops on the ground. But there are other ways uh, that will uh, help, like maybe you know not hundred percent no-fly zone, right? But like just uh, uh, just help with uh, uh, you know defending the defending from the bombs. Uh, like, what, what's your opinion of that? And uh, what uh, what do you know? I, I mean, look, I'm not a military strategist. So for me, yeah. to, but... Uh, me, me neither. So. Um, I mean, on the one hand, those who are very wary of a no-fly zone are correct in the sense that a no-fly zone is, uh, is an actual... Is, is an escalation, right? <laughs> like, you know, I remember there's a no-fly zone in Iraq, there's a no-fly zone over the Balkans, speaking of our previous uh, Serbian guest. And that, that means that, like, if a plane goes up, you have to shoot them down, right? Like, clearly, this is this is like a real show of force. On the other hand, you know, at least in most of the reports that you read, 
air superiority is still contested. It's not as if it's mostly air attacks that are causing most of the civilian casualties. So I, I don't know. It's It does seem like an odd fixation on Zelensky's part when it doesn't seem as if that's the thing that's really, that's really yeah. sort of bogging down the Ukrainians. Um, uh, yeah. I sort of agree. I think that, uh, that, from him as a politician, right? Uh, he's he's sort of uh, trying to make this claim um, and this ask because uh, you know it's it's easier to convey the uh, the importance uh, of the situation. But like the details that I hear is basically that uh, really this uh, the sort of you know Russian rocket launchers that are just bombing cities and like they're in their let's say like fifty miles range and. Uh, the problem is that there's just, uh, you know, very difficult for Ukrainian forces to take them out, right? Because y- you can't just, like, you know, approach them. Uh, so you need some kind of, a, uh, I don't know, um, equipment, basically, uh, to respond to that. So, um, so just, I mean, just like, yeah. yeah. I, I can see a sort of cynical argument being that it's Zelensky's bid to sort of draw NATO into the conflict. Which I, again, I you know I don't like sitting here and strategizing about you know the supposed, but it doesn't seem as if it doesn't seem as if a no fly zone is like the critical thing that they need, right? That, that's that's not gonna like is that gonna change the facts on the ground in Mariupol? I, is I, I don't know maybe, maybe it will. I'd, I'd I'd love to hear arguments if that's the case. The argument that I that... heard basically that uh, uh, the no fly zone will allow them to reinforce uh, you know that area. Because uh, they can send, uh, you know, convoys, troops to. Uh, otherwise, they'll be just like bombed. But I, I don't know. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, let me ask you also um, uh, the following question. Uh, so you're all in in Lviv, right? Yeah. How far yeah. How far are you planning to uh, to go, or like uh, where? Well, so, so just to be clear, right this second, right this minute, I'm in Warsaw. I was in Lviv this morning mm-hmm. until like noon, but. Um, yeah, no, I was thinking of going east, but now I think what it's like, we're actually having beers, as you can probably tell. And it was like, man, we should, you know, we should have gotten the train to keep. Like, it wasn't that, you know, it's far away. The thing is, you know, certain parts of Ukraine, you know, aren't actually that, like the western part of Ukraine, as I've said many times, you know, really isn't that dangerous. It's just, it's the second order risk. If things turn bad, how hard is it to get out, right? And the, as you know, as you know, the further east you go, <laughs> the harder it is to get out. Yeah. And... I mean, the other thing, of course, is that there's a certain moral trade-off. You think about it, it's like, well, you know, if if Kiev were to actually, I don't think the Russians would be able to pull it off, but if it were actually encircled or besieged in a serious way, well, you're another mouth to feed. If you get wounded, you have to get treated. If, you know, if, if you're in a building, some ambulance crew will risk their lives to come rescue you. If you're actually fleeing, you're taking a seat that somebody else should probably have, right? Like, why are you yeah. there? Right? You either contribute to the war effort or you contribute to the media campaign that helps Ukraine in the wider West. But if you're not doing that, then, then why are you there? Because you're just a liability. And so I think that's the that's the argument against going further east, aside from the personal personal right. safety concerns. Uh, and la- last question. Uh, in your opinion, uh, what will be sort of the best way to, let's say, um, you know, convey um, sort of larger military support uh, uh, needs to sort of the society here um, because it seems to be the no-fly zone is kind of, um, you know, people don't really mm, see it as a necessity or see it as a high risk. Um, 
What's the best way to actually support Ukraine from the West? Well, no, what's, the, what's the best way to convince people, let's say, or to explain to people here in, in the West uh, uh, the need of, uh, you know, uh, further military support? Um, That's a big question, right? <laughs> I mean, the Ukraine discord <laughs> in the West is, um, again, I think a little bit at a remove from the reality on the ground, right? Um, and that people are projecting lots of things on Ukraine, Um but uh, I mean, the way I see it, it really is a confrontation between a country that's aspiring to be part of the, the liberal democratic West and, and a country that's an antagonist to that world and is trying to, to consume this other country and make it part of itself. And so I, you know, I, yeah, I, you know, I think Americans tend to be sympathetic to underdogs and they tend to be, you know, sympathetic to democracies rather than tyrannies. So I, um, I don't know. Maybe yeah, that's yeah. a bad answer to your question. Um, okay. Thank you. Thanks for, yeah, thanks thanks for your, oh my God. So this, this is going to be interesting. Okay. Oh, look who, oh, look at this. Here's Apurva. Apurva is asking me questions. Hello, Apurva. Hey. Um, I had. I think uh, I think I think I recognize your voice, Aprova. Uh, uh, th- thanks, Antonio. That's uh, um, nice. <laughs> uh, I actually wanted to know your opinion on. <clears throat> you know, we were talking about how propaganda um, in Ukraine seems to be like you know Ukrainian seems to be just better, whether it's their Twitter game or the TikToks or whatever. Uh, generally, seem to be better. Um, than the Russian ones. Um, and my thought around that was that Russia generally prevents their citizens from being more on the Western sort of social media, right? There's always been sort of this control over what can be said and what can't. And I don't think Ukraine has had that, at least not since like 2014 uh, or so. Do you think that's kind of benefiting them? The fact that they're using the same media, like whether it's TikTok, whether it's Twitter, whether it's Facebook, um, that their um, younger generation is more on uh, the same social media as their Western counterparts, which is helping them play play this uh, uh, media game or the uh, technology game a bit better than the Russians who are probably not on a bunch of these Western social media platforms? You know, it's a good question. And, um, you know, a lot of people I interviewed, like I wasn't asking like, oh, what is your media diet? Because it's kind of like an awkward question. But as an example, our fixer in Lviv, who was like, what was her exact age? I don't know, probably 19 or 20. Like obviously young, university age, tuned in. Um, I was like, do you use TikTok? Because, you know, I was thinking, Approva, I know that you have an interest in TikTok. She's like, uh, you know, it's a huge time suck. I don't really use it. A lot of them use Telegram. They follow the, the news of the war. Everyone's like doom scrolling Telegram for news of the war. And they follow their favorite channel. She wasn't on Twitter, although, of course, she knew about it. They kind of knew about Facebook. Everyone's on 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 WhatsApp, obviously. Um, yeah. You know, I, you know I, I wish I understood those cultures better. I, I hate to generalize that. I don't feel I actually understand Russian versus Ukrainian culture well enough to say, oh, yes. The Ukrainians are totally hip and cool and the Russians are terrible boomers and just can't do anything. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I don't know those cultures well enough to answer that question. Um, yeah. Okay. But it's yeah. like, it's, I, I don't know what it is, but it's like, it's like weird. Like 
Like Zelensky's digital media dude, like tweets at Elon and gets a bunch of fucking Starlinks, right? Right. And like that person doesn't exist inside Putin's world. Like, right. It just, exactly. Like, yeah. Like it's like it's like these old like Russian-looking dudes in uniforms from like the Soviet period who like the most right. uncool. Thing. Like they couldn't sell any. Like it's just horrible. And somehow in Ukraine, that's 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 not true. I mean, it's like, right. Zelensky's I mean, one like country, my age. Right. Yeah. One country is led by a boomer, and other countries led by. Um, you know, Gen X or Millennial. Gen X, which is right. the last good generation. Let's, <laughs> we all can just agree on that, can't we? Yeah, yeah, that, that was one. And then, uh, if you don't mind, can I plug for uh, for like yes, Skowitches? Yes. Um, so yeah. So for those of you who don't know me at all, um, I used to work at Uber, and uh, Antonio kind of talked a little bit about um, Andrei Liskovich. Um, he's one of my colleagues, Ukrainian guy, who's actually helping um, raise funding to help with supplies um, and, you know, food and socks and basic needs. So uh, if you if you guys are following, check out Ukraine Defense Fund um, on Twitter or any of the social media platforms. Um, um, yeah, I just wanted to plug that as well, because a lot of you were asking, what is Silicon Valley doing or what are people in tech doing? And there's definitely a bunch of people doing some really amazing work. So check out Ukraine Defense Fund um, for those of you who are interested in helping. Thanks, yeah, so just, Antonio. Just to, context, just to contextualize that and also plug myself. So this Liskovich guy, he's interesting. He's been covered by like Bloomberg and New York Times. Uber dude, he went back. He's 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 Ukrainian, and um, I interviewed him actually. So there'll be an interview on Polar Crest dropping soon, and uh, he's an interesting character, and he's like a fixer logistics dude now who's applying his Silicon Valley operational and technical brain to like, oh, where do we get ballistic vests? Where do we get where do we get um, you know jackets for soldiers and stuff? And uh, anyhow, um, yeah, the Ukraine Defense Force thing. Um, all right. Well, thank you, Aforva. I've got a few more callers. I don't want to. I want to be this guy who's like going on forever. Oh, we still have a decent number of listeners. Okay. All right. Let's let's go to um, let's go to Max. Let's see. Next next caller. Welcome, Max. I'd like to reference uh, Masha, uh, if I can, like her two arguments that she said uh, that she had time to say. So it, it was it was very hilarious to be honest, because those two arguments are absolutely top two from the playbook of any Russian propaganda. And there is, of course, about 20 Russian propaganda arguments that they use. So the first one was, you know, Nazi. Like, how can you accuse the country of being Nazi? You know, like if the, the, the president is Jewish, like it just doesn't work that way, right? You're so silly. Well, you, you have to compare to the realistic, you know, the, the, to the realities of Europe. The Germany has alternative for Germany party has 94 members out of six hundred. 735 members in parliament that's about 12 percent of them are far right borderline nazis right and yet you cannot claim that germany needs a military denazification thus you know that russia needs to attack germany to get rid of nazi government because nazis control the government on the other hand ukraine has zero people in the parliament that right. would be part of uh, any far right or nazi groups so that that just one uh, just one argument. The other one is call for mercy. Can, can I just put you on a pause yeah. for one second, Max? So just to sure. replug the article I mentioned earlier by uh, Aris Rusinos about the far right in Ukraine, he mentioned that 
uh, despite, I mean, the Azov Battalion is real and they, in fact, fought in the eastern part of the country. When he launched a political party, he couldn't even get the minimum in parliament. He literally has no seat in parliament. There's no, he has no constituency, etc. Just to reiterate what you, what you just said. But sorry, go yeah, ahead. But, yeah, but also, also we can also, like, if you play with the numbers, we can say that Azov Battalion, at, as far as we know, has 600 people uh, and they're yeah. part of the Ukrainian army right now. So they consist 0.04% of the Ukrainian army, or like, sorry, 0.4% of the Ukrainian army. Thus, um, this is two times less na- na- Nazis in Ukrainian army, so-called, than HIV positive in Russian army. So if if you want to call the Ukrainian army a Nazi, then you should have, uh, at least you should be two times more sure to call Russian army as HIV positive people. Like, okay, that's an odd comparison. Just, that's a really odd comparison you're drawing, to be honest. But uh, okay, anyhow, let's move on to your... Well, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just talking about pure numbers, but yeah, sure. The other one is called for mercenaries, right? So uh, that's that's the other one, bananas, because um, of course, Ukraine has foreign legion. That's absolutely right and correct. But Russia was calling and right now hiring Syrian um, like members from Syrian army, uh, paying them anywhere from 300 to $500 to participate in the war. They also had a talks with Kazakh and as well as Belarusian. So far, Kazakh's people and Belarusian have refused. And according to recent, recent reports, there was also talks with North Korea and China to help with the military and you know, food perspective. Like this is, this is just a bananas to somehow... Um, imply that like calling for mercenaries is a sign of uh, Nazis or weakness. Like it's when Russia, so much stronger country is doing that. Like we don't, and Ukrainians after all, they, I, I don't think they need like any sort of um, any propaganda to, um, to kind of put belief in them that they can win because they have already did unthinkable for the rest of the world. They stopped the Russian right. army and right. in some areas they're even counterattacking at this point. So that's right. Yeah, that that, that, yeah, was, yeah, I mean, that was about right. Yeah, that's the incredible thing, again, about the Ukrainian nationalist fervor is that, you know, many Ukrainians returned to fight. People who didn't necessarily have to, a dog in the fight, they returned. And um, and uh, again, to con- yeah, exactly. To consider the Ukrainians need a mercenary spirit when, in fact, the entire nation is unified and against a Russian invader. It's, um, yeah, I mean, it's a ridiculous argument, basically, Max, but... <laughs> <laughs> and if I can just add one one more thing, like it's easy to, of course, to um, to accuse Ukraine of being like very nationalistic. And of course, you can find some examples of that, of uh, extreme anti-Russian um, uh, sentiment in, in Ukraine. However, it's easy to say for any American who, which country has recently hasn't been in the war, especially the war with the, the forces that are so much more powerful than your own. When you come out of your building and you see your neighbor slice in half uh, by your enemy, it's 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 very difficult to not to be not to feel um, all the worst, all the opposite of empathy to the enemy in in that type of situation. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. Right, like the, the West or Americans haven't actually faced like an existential conflict, possibly ever. Certainly not within living memory, and so I think it's. Um, like, you know, you, you see a lot of the Twitter threads and it's like, oh, the Ukrainians are being a little bit hyperbolic about their claims. Like, dude, do, do, do you understand the conditions are living in? Right. Like, it's, uh, you can forgive a little bit of uh, exaggeration or at least uh, motivated reasoning. So, yeah, and I, I agree. I, I think it's, uh, 
you know, it's, it's weird, like looking at uh, the EU versus the American discourse, I just a little bit of a tangent, sorry, Max, but the, the, the discourse between like, the, the, I, I think the Europeans are able to empathize more with the Ukrainians. Their, their World War II memory is, is more akin to that, right? Like my grandmother told me the story when like the enemy troops showed up or when like the air raid sirens sounded. And Americans have no collective memory about that whatsoever. Like it just doesn't exist at all. Or, or the notions like refuge, like we have to pack our bags and literally go. Most Americans don't quite kind of get that, right? And it's it's uh, it's unfortunate because I think the, that leap of empathy it makes it hard to understand things if you can't see the world through their eyes. And and I think anyhow, sorry, I'll stop rambling there. But I man, we have way more and more callers. So let me sorry, I'm gonna Max, I'm gonna I'm gonna move on to the next guy, Joel, who actually has an American flag as uh, as his avatar. Joel, are you there? No, we lost Joel. Okay. I'm going oh, wait, to that, hey, can you oh, hear me? Oh, there we go. Yes. Hey, Antonio, yes. how you doing? Hey. Hey, good, uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for taking the time to talk. Uh, really interesting. So I've got like two open-ended questions, and I'm not like appealing sure. to authority. I just kind of uh, appreciate your uh, perspective on things, maybe some like historical perspective. Um, I see this as like a real inflection point. Um, I'm an American here in Europe, and uh, I really feel like it's kind of triggered something. It's kind of uh, triggered this kind of war memory in the blood, if you will, and it's got a lot of people um, concerned. And I really think, um, I mean, beyond the obvious, obviously Putin's shot himself in the foot completely. I mean, you've got the entire, you know, what do you want to call Western civilization or whatever kind of against him. It's a real inflection point. And uh, I mean, uh, I, I think in a lot of ways, one in which this kind of top down information warfare that they've been doing for, you know, it's been part of their doctrine for a very long time seems to be kind of falling flat on its face against kind of a more grassroots, you know, the fake astroturf versus the real. And um, I just kind of wanted to get your opinion on that and um, just kind of how you feel things are different as an American, of course, but you know, going around Europe and, and seeing how things are and, and what's what's different about this vibe. I mean, I'm here in Europe, too. And I mean, you don't have to go very far at all to see World War One memorials with, you know, towns losing dozens of young men and all that. And, yeah. you know, that kind of not too far distant memory of it, people hiding in caves when the bombs hit. And um, so that's one piece on what you feel about that. And the second is, you know, in the aftermath of this, I mean, my kind of gut is that there'll probably be some kind of off ramp with, you know, not joining NATO. But my um, question is, talking to regular Ukrainians, where do you see them orienting in towards in terms of who they think are allies, whether it's the West in general, whether it's particular countries like Poland, maybe it's the U.S., you know, I don't know. But in eventually Russia is going to pull out, whether it's, you know, in a week, it's a month, it's a year, whatever. They're going to have to pull out. Um, you know, where do you see, and I'm, I'm guessing, I'm asking where do you see Ukraine orienting, but I guess because you probably can't read tea leaves, maybe when you talk to average Ukrainians, who do they see as having their back in this? Sure. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, the European thing is really definitely something real. Like I've been shocked by the fact that European capitals have reacted much more proactively and militantly in favor of Ukraine than even the U.S. has, which, which again is unusual, right? <laughs> you know, it, the Europeans are typically kind of like the wimpy ones, by and large, who don't take like a strong 
position in international politics. But I think in this case, it's, it's been exactly the opposite, right? The Europeans. Yeah. I mean, when the Russians are, I mean, I'm sorry, when the Germans are willing to, uh, you know, take a financial loss, I mean, that's. Right. Right. You're probably referring to the fact that they finally committed to spending at least a percent of their GDP in defense spending, which is their NATO commitment, which they've never met. But under a, a socialist slash Greens government, right, they, they've actually said, oh, yeah, we're we're rearming, right, to some degree. Or you have the Danes sending weapons or even the Spanish, my own, one of my home countries, uh, who typically is, shall we say, not the most militant country yeah. in the world right now. Yeah, Swedes, too. I mean, like everybody, you know. Right. Right. And it's and everyone's uh, and dude, you walk around like you go to the border and you've got literally Germans, Dutch. Everybody's showing up to help the Ukrainians. I'm, you know, I went to a random beer bar in, in Warsaw. They've got like Ukrainian flags hanging in the beer bar. It's ridiculous. It's like imagine you went to any random bar in the U.S. and there's like Mexican flags everywhere. It just as a random. It's like, why would you have the neighboring countries? But here it's like a thing. So I, I definitely think it has awoken some collective memory because you know every every european high school student whatever country has some like world war ii curriculum because it impacted every country and you and you've seen the black and white photographs and the tragedies and all the rest of it and this is sparking all of that in a way i think in the european mind that it's not in the american mind you know as for the offer i'm dude i you know i don't know i don't, I don't know how this ends I, I i i can't i can't claim but just speaking to ukrainians you know we will win. Like they're, I mean, again, they're not, and they're not being delusional. Like they understand what it implies, but they're just utterly con- convinced that Ukraine will, will persist as a nation. And, you know, I think they, they're oriented towards the West. They want to join Europe. They want to join NATO. They want, they want to be part of the liberal thing. Like I tweeted earlier today, it went fairly viral. Like people skeptical of like the liberal sphere of it. It's like, dude, if you're skeptical of it, it's because you've never been on side of it. Like I've had this debate with like techie people. It's like, Dude, if you think like the liberal world, the liberal norms world doesn't exist, step outside of it. And I guarantee you, you will think it exists, right? Because like whether it be Cuba, for example, that I've reported in or whether it be Ukraine right now, it's like, you know, when you're out of it, right? When it's like, oh, my individual rights are not respected, like democracy, order, like that all goes out the window, right? And yeah, it's um, so, yeah, I think Ukraine definitely orient towards the West. But again, it's not like, they just want to sit there and eat fucking cheeseburgers all day. Like they clearly have a sense of Ukrainian, you know, nationalism, but you know, the, the, the Russian world, like, Oh, being stuck in this weird backwards Russian thing. They, they have no interest in that whatsoever. <laughs> as far as I can tell. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously that, I mean, whatever that, you know, foisted upon them dream is, you know, obviously isn't going to happen, but do you see them, whether it's Hungary or Poland or, I don't know, like Lithuania, you know, some kind of resurgence of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. I'm being a little uh, unserious, but I'm just, do they have a particular orientation, would you say, towards a particular country in terms of, wow, these these folks have really helped us out versus another? I couldn't tell. I don't know. I mean, they all seem vaguely pro-American, but I... Not, not really. I don't know. I didn't ask them. I, that, that, those weren't the stories I was pursuing, so I didn't specifically ask them about that. I, I'm not sure. I don't know. Hey, no worries. I appreciate it. Thanks. Cool. Okay. All right. We have two more callers. We'll we'll probably wind down after this, but okay. True. True. Are you there? Yeah. Hi. Hey, Antonio. Hey. Um, Hey. When, well, first of all, I just want to kind of second that 
as someone whose grandparents are from Europe, all these images are just so reminiscent of World War II. And it's amazing how ingrained these images are 80 years on, only in reverse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so two questions. One, have you managed to get a pulse on the ground as to how people, um, like how are they, how recipient are they to the concessions that are being discussed right now in all these different mediations and uh, and the peace process or so-called stalemate? Right. I, you know, I, I didn't, you know, it's funny, it, like day to day, at least the public sort of discourse around like, what is the deal on the table would change. So it was hard to like, even like frame like, oh, this is, this is, this is the topic of conversation today. Like this is what's going on. But I, I think any, any deal in which Ukraine, Ukrainian sovereignty is compromised, I think would be completely unacceptable. Cause again, I really do think this is a moment in which Ukrainian nationhood is being, I mean, that's what they're fighting for, right? The f- not being Russian. Um, I think any deal that ends up with them not fully in control of their future is a, is a non-starter. It's a no-go. Yeah. Yeah. And the second question, um, what's with the obsession with Israel that you get from all the Zelensky advisors? Do they have an obsession with Israel? I I wasn't aware that. They're like, well, they are kind of trolling. Um, And they're right to, by the way, don't get me wrong. Um, The Israeli government, Bennett, the whole mediation process that for some reason just butted in. I mean, it, it, yeah, no, it is kind of weird, right? That somehow again, the Israelis. It's insane. I, I, I don't, I don't know what it's due to. I mean, I. This isn't a causal thing, but you know, I. So I was reporting on the border. I was talking to the Israelis. They have a whole operation going on. There's a lot of Ukrainian Jews. Okay, there's like three hundred thousand Ukrainian Jews, um, and um, not not all of them necessarily want to leave, but those who do, Israel facilitates that. So. I don't know. It's kind of a Jewy country, broadly, but that doesn't no, necessarily I'm, translate. No, I'm Israeli. Yeah. I'm Israeli. My oh, grandmother yeah. actually came through yeah. Odessa. I think the thing is that um, on the ground here in Israel, it's almost like the Ukrainian ambassador keeps on trolling the government. Rightfully so, but it's on a daily basis, right? Trolling and, how? Trolling how? Wow. What was today? Um, they wanted to speak. They wanted Zelensky to speak to the Knesset, but not through a Zoom. So in order to troll them, they got the mayor of Tel Aviv to meet up with the BB protesters who threatened that the mayor of Tel Aviv will, will convene a protest for Zelensky at the city hall instead. Um, mm. And then the Knesset kind of conceded and said, oh yeah, 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 so you can, you can make a speech in front of the Knesset. Um, the day before uh. that, they appealed to the Supreme Court because they wanted the quota for Ukrainians here to go up. Um, and right now, I think the government's kind of expecting between fifty to 100,000 Ukrainian refugees. Right. So it's, it's on an ongoing basis. And the question is, does that kind of messaging make it across to the Ukrainian people on the street? Like, are they even aware of that? Oh, no, I, just no I, the... I doubt it. I doubt it. No, it doesn't <clears throat> seem that way. I don't know. No. But a lot of what you're describing just sounds like your standard crazy Israeli politics. Right? <laughs> just, yeah. Yeah. It's a Tuesday, right? <laughs> Yeah, right. Anyway, it just so happens to be about Ukrainians because that's the issue of the day. But this just sounds like Israel. I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't totally. And given I was there, you know, supposedly on assignment for a Jewish magazine, I should probably be more perceptive of this. But it, it does seem like there, again, there's a lot of Jewish life in Ukraine. 
but it still seems to live a little bit apart, at least in, in, in Western Ukraine, which maybe is not a good sample from like mainstream life. Like, you know, they're not like, I don't know. It's, I don't think your average Ukrainian even knows that there are Jews around and there's the whole Jewish life there. I, I, they don't, th- I don't think they think about it, in, but I, I could be wrong. I don't know. That was just my approach. And does Israeli operation, like everything that's going on in the borders, both in uh, yeah. Poland and Moldova, does that, like, are they visible or is that just like one of those things that you know um, because of your capacity? They don't hide, right? I mean, like when you cross the Medica <laughs> crossing, which is one of the main crossings, there's like, there's a whole like, Jewish NGO right there with like Magan David and the whole thing. So nobody hides, but I don't think um, they don't exactly advertise it either. Um, it's um, it's subtle. It's subtle. Like I, I, I spent a day hanging around with the Israelis who have like a whole war room in Shemichel and um, they're doing a lot. And again, nobody's hiding, but I, I don't think they're exactly, you know, advertising it either. Um, uh, you, you also have to be discreet because they're trying to get people out. Like they're just, it's complicated. Like the border just, you know, transportation, logistics, communications, all that stuff kind of breaks down and gets complicated in a border with a war and a refugee situation. So I think they're just like completely obsessed with just, oh, so-and-so is stuck here with the family. How do we get them to point B to point C to here? Like they're just obsessed with that and less so with the, the public impression of it. But uh, anyway, that was, that was my impression. Okay, we have, okay, thank thanks. you for, we have two more callers. Yeah, let's just fly through them and then I'm going to probably crash and fall asleep. So Nicholas, Nicola, especially. Hello? Hello? Yes. Can you hear us? Yep. Uh, I just wanted to ask you uh, a quick question about, um, I guess like, journalism during this time and like how much because there's a lot of kind of you know among the people who want to be more contrarian and 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 say that oh it's like a lot of the stuff that you're hearing out of there is true we should we shouldn't trust x y and z about you know what's going on and that there's nothing we could possibly know and i i guess my question is is like in your opinion during this time of war in, in America, and this is maybe a little bit navel gazing, but not in America, but in, in Ukraine. Um, how much should we trust the media or how much should we base our, 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 what we do and what we think about these things in terms of what the United States should do um, on this very kind of unsure information, um, you know, something like that, as opposed to waiting for things to settle down, or is it so immediate that we need to do things now? So I don't know if you can talk a little bit about like how to operate as a country in, in, in under the fog of war and dealing. Yeah. I mean, if I'm, if I'm understanding the, the question correctly, I mean, there, yeah, there's definitely a class of sort of Twitter observer who like, likes expressing skepticism and I, I, I what a term it. It's it's the sort of like I just want to say that's exactly what I'm talking because I've talked to a friend of mine who was talking to me about how oh the the Russians never try to attack at the airbase and I was like I swore I saw on CNN and I was like (laughs) it was it was bizarre to hear people saying things that I remember seeing in videos. Yeah, no, I mean it's 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 a weird thing like oh you know the the ghost of Kiev or like the various rumors that come out of like it's the fog of war it's viral mechanics 
it's a desperate nation, right? There's, there's a lot going on, right? And there is no they, right? There's not some like secret smoke filled room in which they're like hooking up little conspiracy theories to like bamboozle you with. It's like, no, there's just a lot going on. And those who would sit there and doubt and like, oh, that looks fake. Cause it's like, motherfucker, like it would take a fucking Hollywood budget to fake a European city bombed the fucking rubble, which is what's going on in Kharkov. Like, I don't think it's fucking fake, right? And, like, whatever little micro-narrative you're fixating on, like, that's an availability cascade, right? Like, oh, this little piece of information virality is available to you, so you're fixating on it. And But that ne- doesn't necessarily have any, you know, connection to the reality, which is that Mariupol, which is the city close to Crimea, is undergoing a massive humanitarian crisis where, like, Russians are starving the civilian population, like, into submission, right? That is reality, right? Yeah. And you can sit there and quibble with little videos and this and that, but it just doesn't fucking matter, bro, when it comes to the reality on the ground. So you can you can sit and play your little Twitter video game or whatever, but, like, it just doesn't fucking matter, right? Like, you're, you want to talk reality? Let's talk reality. You want to talk your little video game? Play your little video game, but, like, I'm not interested, right? Like, it's just not important, right? And so that that to me is the thing, right? And and I agree. Like, look, like it's clear that the Ukrainians have expressed some things with a certain level of like hyperbole, or like you know, I wouldn't necessarily say oh everything they say is absolutely one hundred percent true. Like, no, I, look, their backs against the wall. It's you know, it's it's a rough world. Like, you're getting air raid sirens, you're getting bombed. Like, there's a little bit of a you know, something going on there, and and. and and at the end of the day, Zelensky is the president of a nation who's arguing for his nation's interests, which aren't necessarily your nation's interests, to be clear. Okay, but um, yeah, I, yeah, that whole media, like, I, that, that's what pisses me off. That's why I got on the plane to Ukraine. It's like this feels like a fucking sham. Like this feels like once again, you can cite many examples: Cuba, Chile, other things where like Americans like get obsessed with certain things, like project this thing. It's like what is actually going on, and. Um, yeah, it pisses me off, to be honest. But, like, again, that, that this is a very real thing, right? Like, I wish, like, I would just, like, pull these people by the hair and, like, not even, like, not that I even experienced it, but, like, oh, like, you know, what is the front line in Cuba? Just, like, literally meet some of these refugees. Like, listen to their stories or, like, imagine what it actually is to be there. Like, I think a lot of these people aren't necessarily evil. They just don't possess the level of empathy to understand what it is to actually be involved in a historical process, like a total war, like, Things are so fucking bad. You're literally getting your kid and your cat in a carrier and you're just heading out into the nothing in the in the intent to like just get away because the alternative is far worse. Like if you can just like understand that for a second and stop fixating on the stupid fucking Twitter war, I, I think that that would be progress. Right. That that would be something meaningful. And I think for many people, like they, they can't quite make that jump. And, you know, it, yeah. it, look, I, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm I definitely... simply, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I, I definitely, yeah, I, that's exactly what I was thinking. And I just, the last point, I, or last question, I guess, is I saw you shared the Francis Fukuyama had a very short kind of little blog post almost about, very optimistic, yeah. I guess, for the West, yeah. Yeah. which I thought was, was interesting. But I was wondering what uh, what you thought about that. If you had any thoughts about how, oh, maybe maybe things don't have to, because I, I, all the observers or the experts, foreign policy people, whatever you want to call them, have like they're all saying, "Oh, Russia is eventually going to win. It's a matter of time, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera, because you know the various military advantages that they have. But it, should should we at all feel optimism at all, like about this I think situation? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, all the foreign policy experts have been completely wrong. 
right? The entire goddamn war, they've been wrong. They assume Russia would just walk all over Ukraine and they completely underestimate the Ukrainian people. And also, from what I understand, the military reforms they put into effect after the 2014 war in the East, like the Ukrainian army or the Ukrainian nation is not what it used to be. And so, yeah, I think the world is, I, th- I think most of that establishment has gotten it completely wrong. And um, I, I don't know why, but again, you, you just talk to Ukrainians and there's a level of resolve there in self-sacrifice that's just sort of spectacular to see. Like literally, we will win, right? Like said in the most unironic, hard way. It's like, man, I, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, like they're just not going to give up. Like I think <laughs> they're just, they're never going to just concede the point and say, oh yeah, we're just like Russia now. I just don't see that happening. And combine that with, you know, what seems to be the evident sort of sham of the Russian military. And uh, yeah, I, I think the world has gotten it very wrong. And and yeah, and the Ukrainians have proven the world wrong in many ways. We'll see. Look, I mean, it's not a utopia, right? Like you talk to Ukrainians, oh, there's a lot of corruption. There's this, there's that. Like it is not a perfect country by any means. And a lot, and I suspect after the war is over, a lot of that fervor will go away in the way that it does because the threat is gone. But um I, I, I don't know. I think I, I said in a somewhat hyperbolic way early on, it's like, oh, this is like the new Spanish Civil War. I think it's true. Like, it, it definitely is the sort of death match between a certain conception of national sovereignty, liberalism, Western orientation, and then just being fucking crushed by, <laughs> by tyranny, right? Like, that is the confrontation. And um, I think if you tune into it at that wavelength, which is what I do, and not like, Oh, color revolutions, this, that, little, do, 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 like the whole American, or equivocating about NATO, because like I feel like that's such a, like a, a rabbit hole you can go down. But I, what I, what I find so interesting about this is it feels like the the conflict is turning into something else, regardless of whatever whatever the hell you know you want to talk about what it started about, right? It it matters what it's about now, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the, that's the other thing. Like the whole like. God, that thread, that thing I posted about the nuclear thing is like this whole like U.S. what about is and Western that's like, dude, like <laughs> again, once again, I trying to pull them to like one of the border crossings or like a city in Ukraine or like the refugee camps outside the train stations. Like, bro, you're talking about like what the U.S. did in Afghanistan 20 years ago. Like, this is a reality right now. <laughs> this is what we can impact right now. It's not just some moral game. And um, I don't know. Anyhow. Part of the reason why I went is the right shit. That Thank you so hopefully... much. Yeah, no worries. Okay, yeah, no worries. one okay. last question, one last and then, question. and then that's it. Because I, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna fade away, and I think people are probably getting bored. Steve, welcome, Steve. Do we have Steve? Steve, the, the mute, the mute button's on the lower right. I guess you're looking for it. No. Okay. Oh, thank you. Got it. Hey. <laughs> Uh, I was just wondering if you were to do an assessment on uh, Russia's strike capability and their ability to maintain a nuclear arsenal, if you were to do an assessment on that one year ago versus today, would it be materially different at all? Like, it kind of scares you a little bit to see if they can't keep their tanks fueled. What would that mean for maintaining a large nuclear arsenal? I do I- I wish I were informed enough to actually answer that question. I can't. I can't quite tell you. Although it does seem as if they have massive logistic problems, and their like combined use of forces is like terrible. Um, as a side thread, 
as some listeners might know, there's like an amphibious forest uh, in front of Odessa that's been moving recently. And so there's a thought that they might amphibiously invade. But um, an indirect way to answer your question is like, can they even pull it off? I, I, I don't know. It's a good question. Like I've often asked, like even the Americans, like, wow, all those silos in Montana, Wyoming, whatever, like how many of those would actually launch if you actually push the button? I suspect it's considerably less than 100%. And I don't know. But in the case of Russia, it's probably even less than what it would be in the U.S. But I, I have no idea. I, I, I couldn't tell you. Okay. Sure. All right. Okay. We might call it a day. I'm totally fading. It is late here. Thank you for following along. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm going to drop some interviews. Some posts are coming. Some outside media is coming. In the next week, I actually compiling on my stuff and finally probably get some sleep. I have probably haven't slept more than like four hours a night for the past like seven nights, as you can probably tell. So anyhow, uh, good night or good afternoon or good morning. Thank you for joining. And um, God, who is even the guest next week? I can't remember. There's some other uh, podcast guests next week, but uh, between now and then, hopefully some people come out. And Slava uh, Ukraini, glory to Ukraine. That's the saying, by the way, that everyone says, like literally pick up the phone, Slava Ukraini, and the response is that are in Slava, uh, glory to the heroes. Um, that's part of the part of the texture of Ukraine. So, anyway, okay, good night all, and uh, talk later.